I feel encouraged uh, hearing Sam's prophecy there of that combination of spirit and word. And uh, you should have been given, as you came in, some notes which are based on Ephesians chapter 2 and 3. And uh, we'll be looking in those passages as God helps us over the next three mornings, feeling that they are very significant to us as we consider, has the future got a church? I will be reading from the New American Standard Bible. I know many of you follow from the NIV. Uh, Every man makes his choice. (laughs) And uh, I'll occasionally perhaps uh, try to keep in step with the NIV as well. Okay, so as I read it, you'll just here and there see one or two differences. I'm just reading Ephesians chapter 2 then, the first ten verses in this opening session. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, in order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Father, we thank you for these magnificent words of Scripture. We thank you also for the inspiring words of prophecy. We thank you, Lord, for word and spirit. We thank you, Father, for the promise written in the Old Testament you would pour out your Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. We thank you, Lord, for visions and dreams and insights and revelation supernaturally and immediately given by the Holy Spirit. Lord, we receive your word to us that you are intensifying the activity of word and spirit over this nation and the nations. We receive your word with hope and joy and thanksgiving. Holy Spirit, you are so welcome in this place this morning, in each heart and mind. And we invite you now, please, Holy Spirit, be our teacher. Come, we pray. Let the scriptures come alive to us and do us good. We need your help, Holy Spirit, and I pray that each one of us may significantly benefit from hearing your word expounded, that, Lord, we may be strengthened in our confidence and motivated afresh to serve you with the power that you promise us. 
Lord, hear us, we pray. Grant to us a spirit of revelation. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, Ephesians is the great chapter, or the great book, rather, on the church. It speaks of the church in such glowing terms. It speaks of the church as the temple, the body, the bride, the army of God, the new man that God is creating. And so we see the Apostle Paul fascinated and excited by the church. And if you've gathered with us for these few days, I anticipate that you share that common stirring. You might say, well, why uh, do you come in at chapter 2? I felt directed to look at this chapter following perhaps the good example of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, whose famous series on Ephesians, when he first went into print, started in chapter 2. And uh, I had this quote from his introduction, in which he says, I know of no chapter in the Bible which states so clearly and so perfectly in one... Uh, I can't read my own writing. At one at the same time, the essential evangelistic message for the unbeliever and the status and the privileges of the believer. It's a chapter that has so much in it in terms of the magnitude of the gospel, the importance of our fully grasping it, and where God is bringing us. If you want a title for this morning, it is God's gracious salvation as resurrection and exaltation with Christ. God has not just rescued us, he's included us in the extraordinary things that he did in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now our starting place is to recognize the desperate need of the human race. And as Dave was saying last evening so helpfully, if we are very man-centered in our thinking, we may wonder, does my church have a future? What can I do about it? How can I improve things? How can I change our style, maybe take on certain techniques uh, to improve what we're presenting as local church? But if we see things from a different perspective, from God's perspective, we realize that a few adjustments aren't enough. We begin to see that there are bigger things at stake. And so we find that an inadequate view of man's condition will lead to a superficial approach to the gospel and to the church. We'll just try using modern methodology perhaps to influence, etc. But Paul, if you like, puts the axe to that whole approach we live in days of mutual toleration where people are pleading with us to not insist on one message but embrace many messages, uh, understanding that surely all roads ultimately lead to God. And so toleration is the word. And it's a hard word to live with when we come to uh, the scriptures and the attempts of the Apostle Paul to uh, explain to us our dire state. And he begins by telling us we are dead. Uh, he puts the axe to the root uh, of our hopes, human hopes. He says, first of all, you were dead. You can't be more absolute than that. He doesn't say you were desperately ill. He doesn't say uh, you're really up against it. He says categorically, you were dead. Right now, what do we mean by that? Because you go on to say walking in certain ways, which we'll look at in a moment. To say we are dead, we need to take the Bible's definition of what is life. We may see the contrast of the human race as dead. The Bible tells us, Jesus, in his magnificent prayer, in John chapter 17 and verse 3, says this, This is eternal life, to know God. And Jesus Christ, 
whom he has sent. God is the sustainer and giver of life. To be in relationship with him, to enjoy him, and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent, Jesus says, this is life. And so the Bible's definition of life is to do with our relationship with God, experiencing him, knowing him, enjoying the Savior whom he sent. The natural man isn't interested in the things of God. The natural man and their thousands will go past this building with hardly a care to see the heading outside uh, this building about the church's future. The natural man is more interested in television and videos and sport and fashion and money, holidays. If approached uh, about getting to know God, that's the last thing in his interest because as the Bible defines it, he is dead to God. He's not looking for God. No one seeks after God, we're told in Romans. In fact, in these opening passages, it's almost like Romans 1 to 3 condensed into a few verses here. Without the life that Christ gives, mankind is dead and experiencing the wages of sin, which will ultimately result in physical death, judgment, and total exclusion from the presence of God. Death, then, is to be away from God. In this brief life, whether we have 70 years or not, we have opportunity to reach out and find Him, to hear the gospel, to accept the message, the good news about Jesus. Meanwhile, we are in a walking, changing life that leads to death. We see our pop stars, we see our film actors and actresses kind of worshipped at Oscar ceremonies, and then we see some of the elderly actresses that used to look magnificent 20, 50 years ago. And they come on as kind of heroes of the past. And you see, even with all the help they can get, creeping death moving in. This is the reality. We flourish as a flower briefly, then we're gone. It's a brief, brief experience. We are dead already. We're beginning to experience the ultimate death that will come, just as we who are believers are beginning to experience the ultimate life that's ahead of us. It has to do with relationship with God. And those without God, the Bible describes as dead, not in some mutual ground, not free to make great choices, as we'll see in a moment. Dead. Paul uses absolutes. John Stott's quote, you'll see in the notes if you're glancing at them, they are as unresponsive to him as a corpse. Then he goes on to describe how is this death recognized, how is it experienced. He says, walking in this way of life, in which you, these trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit, now at work in the sons of disobedience. So he says you're dead. He then says you're enslaved. He says you're walking in a certain way. I know the NIV uh, chooses not to use the word walking. It's a kind of Hebraism. The Jewish mind has this thought that the human world, the human life is walked out. You walk through it. And uh, it's a vivid phrase, which uh, Paul loves, actually. He uses it uh, some 32 times in his epistles, eight in this epistle, sadly, the NIV has lost it. But the idea of walking uh, through life is uh, there for us. We are walking in a certain way. Now, how are we walking? He says, you're walking following the course of this world, the ways of this world, this age in which we live that dominates our thinking. We are shaped 
and conditioned by the way collective humanity lives without God. That's how he describes this death we're experiencing. We are shaped by the culture around us, society organized without reference to God. There's a pressure to conform. Paul urges the believers in Romans 12, 1 and 2, don't be conformed to this world. J.B. Phillips famously translates it, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Now sometimes that following the course of the world is voluntary. We see what is the tone, what is the fashion, what is the mood, and we voluntarily rush into it like lemmings, not wanting to be separate or different or distinctive. In that way, the world can shape you. Sometimes it's not voluntary, sometimes it's an oppressive regime, such as South Africa used to have. The course of this world, for those people, meant for some they lived in black townships. They were shaped by the society, not voluntarily, not wanting it, and there are many uh, places around the world today and have been historically where the world forces its shape. In Western culture, often we choose voluntarily to get into that shape. We don't want to be out of step. We want to know what is the fashion. And uh, we want to be in there. So the world shapes us. Our death to God is expressed by our being shaped by a world without God formed our thinking, our value system, our expectations, our expectation of the rights of the human mind and the rights of liberty and a, a plea for human rights and so on. These are all thoughts trying to sound noble but without reference to God. And we get shaped by them. And into that context it says the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of the realm of the air is controlling. There is a demonic presence. There is a satanic work, something which, again, the modern mind wants to push to the borders and forget, although maybe new age thinking has opened the door again and people begin to wonder, are there experiences? I was interviewed here yesterday morning or afternoon by the local Evening Argus, the Sussex newspaper, Brighton-based, and uh, one of the questions he asked me was, did you have a religious experience? Did you have a religious experience? Are you free to talk about it? That's the sort of question that really wasn't asked much before because, well, we know those things don't happen. But now there's a new openness. Perhaps it happened, something happened to you, did it? There is a willingness. Now, many of you come from nations where there's no question about this. The presence of evil is fundamental and known. But here Paul wants us to understand that there is a prince of the power of the air at work. And so the world shapes you, but beyond the world and behind the world, there are principalities and powers which feature throughout this epistle in terms of Paul's teaching. Colossians 1.13 talks about salvation as being deliverance from the dominion of darkness and transference into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. Getting out from that domination and slavery to the prince of the power of the air, working amongst people. The spirit now at work. At work. It's the Greek word energio, same word that's used regarding God's power. It's an energy factor. God, uh, Satan is energetically at work. When you see sometimes on your televisions, or maybe you've even stumbled into a situation where suddenly there's a mob factor at work. And you feel there is a conforming, but there's something else that's overwhelming and pushing them beyond where they would have been. The spirit, the power at work 
in the sons of disobedience, taking advantage of their vulnerability without God. Satan's power inflames passions and actions in the unregenerate. They're called sons of disobedience. NIV translates it, those who are disobedient. The actual Greek words are sons of disobedience. It's a Hebraism again. It's something in that Jewish mind. It was one of the ways in which things were expressed, that there's a root from which this life flows. You're a son of disobedience. You'll find that phrase uh, recurring right through the Old Testament. Um, And so you'll find Charles Hodge says, sons of famine are famished. Sons of Belial are worthless. Sons of disobedience are disobedient. That's their root. That's where they come from. We're sons of disobedience. Disobedience is the source of our character. Sin is not simply the absence of good qualities. It is lack of obedience to God whom it is right to obey. This is the root of our sin, that we have disobeyed him. Paul says, God has granted me grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles. He sees himself setting out among the Gentile pagan nations to reverse these disobedient ones back to the obedience that's rooted in faith. But now understanding, God is for me. God loves me. There's a cross. There's blood that's been shed. There's resurrection life. I can obey him. God is looking for obedience. He uses grace and kindness. He's looking for obedience. Because this is the root of our problem. This disobedience towards God. We are sons of disobedience. We challenge God's right to choose for us. The Bible teaches this to be the root of our problem. Man is a rebel against God. Now, of course, modern man refuses to see himself as a creature of God. And therefore, unaccountable. We feel we're just some uh, fluke, some extraordinary thing that's just evolved on the planet. There's no reference to God, so there's a freedom. Once we reinstate God the Creator, we're reminded this is the one to whom I give account. But men are choosing rather to disobey and to cover that by saying there is no God to obey. But in their conscience there come moments of fear and awareness. I am not walking with the God who made me. Man likes to think of himself as free. Adam was free, but all since Adam have been children of disobedience. He disobeyed the one who was made by God with the privileges that Adam had. Made in goodness, not made in neutrality, made by God. He was good, and yet Satan corrupted him, and he disobeyed. And since then, we've all been children of disobedience. That's our plight. That's where we start. We are children of disobedience. And this, these disobedient ones are very vulnerable to the prince of the power of the air drawing us into occult practices, activities that are really in him, drug culture. He works on our disobedience. The prince of the power of the air is at work in. This is how this death is manifested. We don't look dead. We look as though we're enjoying life. No, we're ignorant of God, disobedient, vulnerable to a power that can arrest us, fascinate us, and captivate us. And then he says also, we are subject to the passions of our flesh. 
among whom we too formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, sinful nature, according to the NIV, indulging in the desires of flesh and mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Paul uses, and the New Testament uses the word flesh in many different ways, and it's such, such a huge subject, it's not time for us to get into it, really. I just want to bring to you Andrew Lincoln's helpful quote, I think. I'll just read it with you, if you have it there before you. Flesh, in such a context, stands not simply for a person's physical existence, which it sometimes does in other contexts, but for the sphere of humanity in its sinfulness and opposition to God. It is the sphere in which a person not only displeases God, but is also, in fact, incapable of pleasing God. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God, we read in Romans 8, 18. It is the sphere in which life is lived in pursuit of one's own ends and in independence of God. As such, it's not limited to indulgence in sensuality, but can take on various forms, including allegiance to the law, which Paul calls a work of the flesh in Galatians chapter 3. And so here we have man who's dead, and there are these threefold ways in which that's expressed. Enslaved through the world's system, subject to the prince of the power of the air, and with our own flesh, living from within, hostile to God, indifferent to God, not going God's way. And these actions are not just our actions. We can't just dismiss uh, people who do these things. So yes, they're terrible, these people, aren't they? He says, not just an action, but in thought. And that's rather the way Paul re- develops Romans 1 and 2, where he first shows the great sins of, of a, dis- a despicable culture. And then he turns in chapter 2 to the Jewish religious people and says, hey, don't let yourself off. You think these things as well. It's not just in action, but as Jesus demonstrated on the Sermon on the Mount, it's in our intention as well. It's in our thought life, our imaginations. And so we were in this terrible condition. As such, we were also condemned. We're condemned. We were, by nature, children of wrath. There's that similar idea again, children of. uh, NIV, objects of wrath, like the rest of of mankind. Now here we're introducing another theme that we don't often hear much about these days and certainly in the kind of multi-faith concept uh, God's anger and fury is something that doesn't come high on the popularity stakes and yet it is a totally biblical concept. Wrath is a forgotten theme. We're in danger of thinking because God is personal, we are personal so he must be like us. Yeah, God is personal, but he's not like us. Personal he is. Like us, he isn't. It's important you don't slither from one to the next and get it in your mind, oh, God is just like us. John Stott says, the Bible takes sin seriously because it takes man seriously. It is part of the glory of being human that we are held responsible for our actions. That's a wonderful quote from his book, The Cross of Christ. The Bible takes sin seriously because it takes man seriously. Man isn't just some cog in the wheel, not just some number on a computer. 
God takes man seriously. It's the part of the glory of being human that we are held responsible for our actions. And then again, to quote John Stott in your notes, the wrath of God is God's personal, righteous, constant hostility to evil, his settled refusal to compromise with it, and his resolve instead to condemn it. We live by nature as children of the fury, the holy fury of a personal God. And we were children of this, children of wrath. By nature, the phrase is used. By nature, it's, we have inherited this. We're by nature this. This is what came to us as we have evolved, as we have grown rather, in our human experience. We're born, as we grow up, we find in our character a resentment to being told, a resentment to obedience. The youngest child begins to manifest it. There is a resentment towards obedience, a choosing disobedience. We are by nature. It's the same phrase that's used in Galatians 2.15. We who are Jews by nature. In other words, we're born this way. We're by nature. And so we find that Paul particularly develops this as to who we are, where we come from, and uh, that our root cause. He probably develops this more closely in Romans 5, 12 through 21, uh, more than any other passage in Scripture, where he shows our solidarity with Adam, that in Adam we partook of this characteristic and we became children of wrath. He develops it probably strongest there and then shows how we, with him, incur guilt. John Stott says, We were ourselves in Adam. It may be truly said that we sinned in Adam and that in and with him we incurred guilt and died. Right? That's our state. That's our condition. It's a black, black picture. And when Paul says by nature, we do need to understand that he doesn't see that as the essence of human nature, but an abnormal disorder. Satan has broken in and ruined the human race. That's how things started for us. That's who we are. And so when we're talking about does the future have a church, we're looking at the reality of our society. We're looking at our contemporaries as not needing to be impressed. We're not thinking that if we can change our music and get it more up-to-date, somehow that'll do the trick, as sometimes the newspaper interviewer thinks you're saying. Or you mean if you're modern, if it's not old-fashioned, if it's not dowdy, you mean that the church is dying and it's all uh, cobwebs and dust, and you are saying you've got a different style. Well, it's very hard to communicate that in a two-minute interview. But we're not saying that. We love the music. Didn't the guys do brilliantly this morning? I love them. I think they're wonderful. I'm so blessed. Thank you so much. You serve us magnificently. You help us to draw near to God. I love it. But I'm not putting my confidence there. I'm not saying if only we could get, change the style, put some fresh paint on the door, change the building. That'll do the trick. Not at all. People are dead. They choose evil. If you offered them again and again, put better seating, better warmth. Would you like God now? No, we wouldn't. And so as we look at this pressure and this problem, and as statistics are thrown at the church today, and we get little sound bites from bishops and archbishops and the like, we must be very careful that we're not saying, and not understood to be saying, just change it a bit. Just modernize it a bit. The plight of man is so serious, he won't even notice in his soul that you changed it a bit. 
He will be superficially interested in your superficial changes because his need is so deep. It's important that we understand that. And so we come in at this classic chapter to see what we were. And praise God for the buts in the New Testament. But God, what a wonderful turning place. What a magnificent turning point that we... See, we can be both pessimistic and optimistic. People say, are you pessimistic? No, we're realistic. We understand the human condition. We understand his plight is dreadful. But we also know there is a gospel that can totally reverse this. When one sees people like Jackie Pullinger and many others could testify. And she says, well, this young man who's now standing before you and you're just so impressed with his godliness and his maturity and his faith and the shining face. She says, he was a heap of rags in a gutter. That's where I found him. He was hopeless. He was just totally, totally ruined with drugs. Despicable, unloved. But look at him now. Transformed. That's our gospel. We know the reality. We're not, people say sometimes, oh, you, you ministers. I remember uh, when I was doing door to door some years ago, and uh, I was invited into a house, and uh, a lady began to speak about her neighbors and, uh, in a pretty negative way. And her husband said, oh, don't say that in front of Mr. Virgo. He, you know, he's a Christian. He thinks all people are good. And I thought, no, I don't. <laughs> And that's constantly out there. People think, oh, the, the, the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. No, that is not the foundation from which we start. We start from a black, black picture against which the brightness of the gospel shines with clarity. So, dear friends, as we press into this week together, let's see the call. We are believing in a future that has a church. But there's no shortcuts. There's no just upbeat the music. There's no just paint the building, just change the decorations. That will never, never do it. It's rediscover the reality and the authenticity and the power of the gospel. And as we look at the reality of people's needs, we'll get back to the truth of God's answer for it. So let's move in, hallelujah, to the second half of this section. But God, but God. What has God done? Well, God, we're told, rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us when we were dead in trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. Hallelujah. We are saved. We need not to be ashamed of that Bible word. God has saved us. Verse 5 and verse 8. He has rescued us. That is the God he was of the Old Testament. The psalmist said, I cried to the Lord. He delivered me. He saved me. He saved the whole nation. He brought them out from Egypt where they lived in slavery and abject fear and misery. God intervened and saved them. He rescued them when they were hopeless. Slaves. They had no appeal. They couldn't say, I think I'll choose my way out of here. They needed a saviour. They needed a deliverer. And so we have a saviour. That's why we make much of Jesus. He saved us. We didn't just turn a new leaf. We didn't say, I'll try religion. We had an experience of God who saved us. Praise his name. How did he do it? Well, he saved us. And we're told of, there are three uh, verbs here that have a prefix added. The prefix sin in, the, in Greek, which means together with. All right, together with. He made us alive together with Christ, verse 5. He raised us up together with Christ, verse 6. He made us sit with Christ, verse 6. 
three things happened to Jesus included us who are in him. All right? We are in him. And now we get introduced to us one of the most magnificent New Testament concepts and teachings that are there for us to discover. Fundamental to the New, Test- to two New Testament Christianity, John Stott says, is this concept of our union, the union of God's people with Christ. It is that wonderful insight into what a true Christian is. He's not just following the example. It's not just an imitation of Christ. It's not just an endeavor to uh, discover what sort of lifestyle, trying to follow the Sermon on the Mount, try and be good to my neighbor, turn the other cheek. What do I have to do? No, that is missing this fundamental center. Paul's favorite phrase, a man who is in Christ. He's in Christ. It's a marvelous miracle of God. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, Our union with Christ is one of the greatest and most marvelous of all Christian doctrines. One of the most glorious beyond any question at all. Our being united with Christ. So the the scripture represents it in two ways, maybe more one could say, but I want to just quickly spend a little while on two ways we can look at our union with Christ. First of all, we could say it's federal or covenantal. It's something that God sees as being true. We used to be in Adam, who was heading up this race. We were federally, covenantally. God dealing with Adam dealt with the human race. We were covenantally, federally, in this one. That when God dealt with Adam, the human race was included. At one time, he was the human race. And then Jesus said to Nicodemus, the religious guy, unless you are born again, you'll never even see the kingdom of God. You must be born again. You must be born again. You have to have another experience. You've got to get into another race whose head is Christ. Again, that's probably developed most clearly in Romans 5. We step out of being in Adam to becoming in Christ. He's our head. That's our new address. Who are you? Well, Paul can write to the Christians here and there, to the saints who are in Colossae, who are in Christ. We have a new address. We're in Christ. It's something God sees as true. The moment we are born again, we are in him. We are snatched out from Adam and placed into Christ. We are in Christ. That's how God has dealt. This is how God is saving us. This is his method of saving us. We are in Christ, federally, covenantally, or it could be added, secondly, mystically. Mystically. Jesus said, I am the vine, I'm the true vine, you are the branches, abide in me, and I in you. He begins to introduce there more than simply, if you like, an outward list under which you are. You're either under this head or this head. He's talking about something that's kind of mystical. I'm in you. You're in me, like a branch and the tree. My life, the sap, the sap flows from the, the root into the branch. And if ever you look at vines, if ever there was a tree that it's hard to see which is branch and which is root, you're in me, we're interwoven. Mystical union, body and members. He's the head, we're the body. husband and wife, 
Ephesians 5. The two should become one flesh. This is a great mystery. I take it to be Christ and the church. It's a mystical union. We are actually joined. Not just registered as joined, but actually joined. One in Him. United with Christ. That's how God magnificently saves us. Therefore, what has happened to Christ has happened to us. That's how God saved us. He sent a Savior. Just as Adam sinned and ruined the human race, here comes a second Adam to the fight. And all that he experienced, we are privileged to have reckoned to our account. So, we were dead, Christ took our place. He suffered and died as though he was the greatest sinner that ever walked the planet. But he wasn't left dead. And so we are told, we were made alive together with him. God didn't leave him dead. On that great Easter day, yeah, he associated with us in our death. He partook of our death. He associated with our total separation from God. The human race, all living, blind, dead, in trespasses and sins, condemned, death over them. Jesus came right down into that, took sin on himself, identified with us in our death, but God raised him from the dead and included us with him. We were co-raised. He was lifted out of the dead condition of the human race. Totally partook of death. Came down, let the swamp of death overwhelm him. But God didn't leave him dead. He pulled him out from death and we came with him. We were dead, but we've been raised together with him. He was raised. The Christian has come to the end of his death. He's in life now. He's co-raised. He's co-ascended. He's co-seated. What happens to Jesus happens to me. I'm in him now. It's a totally new deal. The Christian is a fundamentally different person. He's fundamentally different to the man in the street he walks by, though he may look so similar. He's part of a new deal. Christ's death, Lincoln says, was the death of the old order to the powers of this age, including sin. His resurrection was a coming alive to a new order of, in which he functions as Lord with the power of God. Do you understand what he's saying? He's saying, dear friends, it's more than just my being saved, which we'll return to in a moment again. Jesus coming in and tasting death and, and becoming sin and being dead and then rising, breaking the chains of death, coming out in a new order. And so Lincoln says Christ's death was the death of the old order to the powers of this age which dominated hitherto. Now Christ has broken through. He's broken through sin. He's broken through. And so there's a coming alive of a new order. There's some resurrected people around. There's people who are freshly alive. They're not just churchgoers. They're not happy clappies. Though you are permitted to both be happy and clap. We are of a new order. A new order is on planet Earth. There are people who've already come through death. With Christ. New people. Christ's death and resurrection changed the power structures in history, Lincoln says. 
For believers to have died and been raised with Christ was the equivalent of having been transformed from the old dominion to the new. Because of God, in God's sight, they've been included in what happened to Christ. He goes on, Christ's exaltation involved his triumph and rule over the hostile cosmic powers. A new situation in regard to these powers was inaugurated in history by Christ's victory. All right? A new situation in regard to these powers was inaugurated in history by Christ's victory. The powers suddenly find they're not dominant. Woof! There's another power over them. And many seated in that new power status above them. There's an inauguration of a new people seated in the heavenlies. It's a new day. It's a totally new day. That God has seated believers with Christ means, therefore, they are part of the new dominion superiority over the old. Participating in its liberation from the powers and its restoration of harmony to the cosmos. God's done an amazing thing. Has the, church, has the future got a church? You bet it has. You bet it has. Because God has raised us above principalities and powers with Christ. With Christ. What happened to him, happened to you. It's magnificent that Paul puts it into one verb. Co-raised. Co-seated. It's like you can't separate. It's in one word. We're with him. What happened to him, happened to us. He has, it goes on, made us alive. He's quickened us. He has regenerated us. Now, see, that's the word, the next word, we are quickened. Right? We've been quickened. We've been, our personal experience, we're talking here with these Lincoln quotes about, if you like, the outward thing God has done. Now I want to return back to the personal experience, as I said I would. He has regenerated us. We've had an experience. We were born again. Happened to us. Again, don't let's let the world steal that word from us. I see it so many times in the press now. I see it all the time, especially about sportsmen or politicians that have another go. It kind of says, born again, Paul Merson. Maybe get back in the England team. What it means is, not he's had a religious experience. Oh, God knows, I don't know. But what they mean is, he's having another go. Score, scored an amazing goal, playing brilliantly for Villa. Born again. No, 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 not born again. Sorry, not born again. Just somehow doing better. Not born again. That's not what it means. We see it with all these guys. Have another go. I see it so many times. No, regeneration. Let me give you what Lloyd-Jones says. Regeneration, an act of God by which a principle of new life is implanted in man and the governing disposition of the soul is made holy. What a beautiful statement. What a beautiful statement. An act of God. I remember kneeling as a 16-year-old saying, Jesus, come into my heart. I felt it happen. Immediately felt it happen. Found myself crying. It's an act of God. A new life, a principle of new life is implanted. We're not talking about be religious. We're talking about a phenomenal personal experience. Outwardly in God's sight, up there in the heavens, personally, our awareness level is, I'm born again. I feel new desires. We'll see later. We have to walk in them. But first of all, there's a principle of life that's implanted. And we need to see it is a creative act of God. 
It's a new creation. We'll come to see that more later in terms of the church, the whole church being a new creation. But here for the individual first, we were raised with him. What does that mean? What does it mean to be raised with him? Well, we're no longer dead in trespasses and sins. We're no longer walking in that old way. We're walking in newness of life. We have a new heart. We have a new disposition to choose good. Whereas formerly, we would choose evil. And when we do choose evil out of our foolishness, or if we get backslidden, we have this awareness deep within, I am being foreign to my new identity. We have conviction of sin, this sense I'm failing my father. The natural disposition now is to please God. There's a new disposition within me. Properly fed, cared for, nourished, this new disposition will govern my life. It's a new disposition. I'm a slave of righteousness, it says in Romans chapter 6. It doesn't say try, it says you are. You used to be a slave of sin. It says in Romans 6, we haven't got time to go there, but you can imagine yourself, you used to be a slave of sin, you were in the, 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 you were in the sin uh, business, you were a slave of sin. Your master was sin, and he took you out every day. Come on, slave. All right, here I go. I'm a slave of sin. Sin's my master. And then one day, we went together and arrived at the slave market. Come on, slave. Yes, all right, sin. I'm a slave of sin. And it says in chapter 6 of Romans, we who were slaves of sin became slaves of righteousness. One day, righteousness walked through the marketplace, looked at you, and said, I'll buy him. You want me? I'm a slave of sin. No, no, you're going to be my slave now. No, well, how? I'm paying for you. I will pay the full price for you. You're no longer sin's slave. You are now. You became. You became. It doesn't say, listen, this isn't an exhortation. One of our great sins as preachers is to turn these wonderful promises into exhortations. Come on, try and be. Hey, let's get some good news out there first. The good news is this. You used to be a slave of sin. Now, you have become a slave of righteousness. Righteousness says, come on, slave. Okay, master. Okay, master. I'm at home now in your world. It's all there in Romans 6. We were slaves of sin. We're not anymore. Hallelujah. My natural disposition through regeneration is to be a slave of righteousness, to want to do righteousness. It's in my soul. It's in the soul of every believer. We must believe that. We must preach that, dear friends. Get some beautiful feet and proclaim some good news. Say, your God is reigning. He set you free. You're a slave of righteousness. Live it up. It's where you naturally belong now. You've been regenerated, all right? We've been regenerated. We used to be this, now we're that. No longer of the world. No longer under the dominion of Satan. No longer under the wrath of God. No longer having a continuing city, but looking for a city which is to come. Those Hebrew Christians were told, here we have, Hebrews 13, Hebrews 11, sorry, Hebrews 11, we're told, we have no continuing city. Hebrew Christians, don't get taken up with a continuing city. We have a city to come. That's where you need to focus. Here, we have no continuing city. We're not preoccupied with such things. That's what the Hebrew Christians of the Bible were told. Look, our, look 
for the one that is to come. We live as strangers and pilgrims in this passing life. That's what it means to be in the heavenlies. We're not on the earth. We're not an earthly people. We're not preoccupied with such things. Positively, it means what? I participate in Christ's triumph. I enjoy the fruits of his victory. I enjoy life in the Holy Spirit. We are within the veil, outside the camp. That's what it is to be in the heavenlies, in our lifestyle, outside the city, looking for a city which comes down out of heaven. We've got a new focus. That's what it is to be in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. No longer to those, subject to those things that used to dominate our lives. Now we're seated and secure at a new address. In the heavenlies, in Christ. So we've seen what God has done. Hallelujah. Next I want to just see why God did it. Why God did it. As we move towards the conclusion here. Why did God do it? Well, there are four key words just to mention and maybe to note down. Verse 4, mercy. Again, verse 4, love. Verses 5 and 8, grace. Verse 7, kindness. Why did God do it? In the mystery of his being. That God is love. In spite of our being so disqualified and foul in the sight of a pure and holy God, in spite of all that disqualified, out of his great mercy, out of the greatness of his love, out of his breathtaking grace, out of the kindness, the overflowing compassion of God has come to those who have no merit at all. Nothing to appeal. We have nothing to bring to God. It is he, seeing us in our plight, who took the initiative. How did he do it? Well, he has done it because, rather. Why did it? Because of his character and who he is. Not only for our sake, his character of love and kindness poured out on undeserving sinners, not only for our sake, but also as part of a larger purpose, we're told in verse 7, to display the riches of his grace. You'll see later on that God has this intention. You find it actually even right back in chapter 1, which of course we haven't looked at, but in verse 6 it says right there in the opening words, to the praise of his glory or to the glory, rather, of His grace. To the praise of His grace. God Himself will be praised. He receives to Himself glory and praise and honour in this lavish outpouring of mercy and kindness. So it's for our sake, yes, it is also that He might be greatly glorified. And we're going to see that in chapter 3, later in the week, that where it says, to the glory of His praise, that He might demonstrate to principalities and powers something of His character, something of His magnificence, His, his wonder to principalities powers. He's using the church as a display. And through ages to come, He's going to show the unsurpassing grace ages to come. It's a demonstration of God. He said, I'm going to make a mighty painting, a mighty tapestry, a wonderful creation. I am displaying my grace that he might be glorified by men and angels. So it's for our good out of his great mercy, but it's for his glory that he might receive praise for his infinite grace to people like us. How did he do it? Well, he did it by grace 
through faith. God's act of grace is the ground of our salvation. Our faith is the means by which it becomes effective in a person's life. Our faith is what is the open hand that takes. Our faith is saying, yes, Lord. Our faith is saying, I accept it. I accept your judgment of me, that without you, I'm a sinner. And even this morning, maybe you've come into a church, even in leadership, and you haven't settled this. Maybe even this morning you've not yet settled this. The only way, dear friends, is because of His grace. There's nothing you can do except believe it, receive it, by faith, take it. Faith isn't some activity that builds muscle, as it were, to wrestle this out of God's hand. It is simply receive it. By faith. Say, yes, Lord, I believe you. I consider you faithful. I was looking at that word considering in my own devotions yesterday, looking at Hebrews 11. These men considered. They just thought, God, you're faithful, I believe you. Faith comes out of considering the character of God, the trustworthiness of God. Receive it by faith. Not some great thing you have to achieve. The whole thing is not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. That none should boast is the next phrase you come to. That none should boast. Paul has a big thing about this. He doesn't want us boasting. Now, it's not only Paul, of course. It comes from the heart of God. He doesn't want us boasting. You'll find in Romans 3.27, he doesn't want us boasting in our works. That no one can boast in their works. You'll find in 1 Corinthians 1, he doesn't want us boasting in our wisdom, our ability to think it through. You'll find in Galatians 6 and Philippians 3, that we are not to boast in our flesh, even our religious flesh. If you want to boast, the Bible makes it very clear, boast in the Lord. We boast in nothing that we can produce. It's the gift of God that no one should boast. Today we stand before God. No one of us will boast. We will cast whatever crowns we may have before him. He will be our center of worship. He will be the focal point of all our adoration. Praise his magnificent name. And he did it by a new creation. By a new creation. We've somewhat alluded to this before, but I want to just bring us to the end of the passage. Verse 10. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are his workmanship, created. The saved man is a created, a new creation. Something new has come to birth that wasn't there before. Lincoln says, Paul saw the salvation God had inaugurated through Christ as a new creation. Galatians 6 and 2 Corinthians 5. It was more than simply a restoration of conditions before the fall. It's important to see that. It's not just a restoration. Christ gained more than our father lost. Hallelujah. Oh, praise him. We will sing a hymn at the end. I thought we wouldn't. <laughs> All right, so it's, it's not just a restoration of conditions before the fall. It involved rather the creation of a new humanity. <laughs> a new humanity. That destiny... God had purposed, but which before Christ had not been reached. There's a destiny 
for the human race, a new creation surpassing what Adam originally experienced and lost. We are his workmanship. Jerusalem Bible translates it, his work of art. We're his work of art. Poema, word from which we get poem, his creation, his workmanship. I love, I love that hymn we sang just before. Uh, it's, it's, Stuart wrote, it's just magnificent. It's a beautiful poem set to melody. It's beautiful. It moves your heart. It's workmanship. It takes work. Melody, word. Now listen, you're God's work of art. His creation. His new creation. His poem. His handiwork. Created what? This is a wonderful note to finish on. I pray it is. For works foreordained of God that we should walk in them. We're his creation. He created us. He got involved in these dead, blind, foolish people that we were. Raised us with Christ out of our death. Jesus coming under the dreadful muck of death. Coming out, bringing us with him. Recreating us, regenerating our spirit. And then saying, now, those are the works I've foreordained for you to walk in. I planned for you in love. He's silently planning for me in love. I know the thoughts I have for you, God says. Thoughts of good, not of evil. I know the plans I've got. Not for evil, but for good. That you should walk in them. That you should walk in them. God has plans. Does the future have a church? He's got great plans for us. Great plans. I receive with all my heart. The Bible says weigh prophecy. I'm weighing it. I'm sure many of you others weighed it in your spirit. Sam's prophecy. There is an intensification of storm conditions in our spirit. A combination of word and spirit. Let's not go the drift of some charismatics who don't bother with the Bible. God forbid. Let's not go the cold way of dissecting doctrine and only living for the latest detailed dissection. Let's live full of word and spirit and see the storm of God's presence that that brings. God's got works for us. And I must finish with the phrase Paul finishes with, that we might walk in them. Sorry, you NIV readers. We used to walk in trespasses and sins. We used to walk according to the course of this world. What's the latest fashion? Oh, I better buy one of those. We used to walk the prince of the power of the air telling us what to do. We don't walk that way anymore. We've got works foreordained of God. Not automatic but that we might walk in. Walk in. Walk in. So we said, Lord, are you speaking to us about Stonely Bible Week? I thought that was set in concrete. No, no, that's not set in concrete. My church is set in concrete. But I've got works. And walking means I can't see around every corner. I'm a human. I'm a creature. That's why I love, the, I love that Bible phrase. I walk. Walk before me. That's what Abraham was told. Walk before me. You're a creature. Walk. 
but walk before me. Walk into works. I, with all the excitement, I've prepared for you. Who would have dreamed? Who would have dreamed we would ever have seen what we have seen? I would never have dreamed that we would have leaders international conferences in my hometown with people from around 40 nations coming in. I would never have dreamed. But God knew works. There are works, dear friends. This is the most excited passion you could ever get your life lined up with. Don't waste your life. God's got works for us. But listen, you've got a responsibility. Walk in them. Step by step. Step by obedient, believing step. Walk in it. You're a creature with God's hand on you. Born again. The lavish supply of grace to accompany you. God's saving power reaches its intended goal by a changed lifestyle. Let's pray. Can we come up, musicians, please? Father, we thank you for your incredible kindness to us who were dead. We accept your description of us. We take it on board. We were dead. But you've made us alive together with Christ. You've changed the power structures of the cosmos. You've put a saviour above principalities and powers. A man in the heavens to whom you've said, sit down at my right hand. And we're seated with him. Lord Jesus, we truly honour you. We magnify you. We exalt you. We thank you for your great victory. We say, Lord, be glorified. Lord, I pray for every person in this room this morning. Help us to walk into those works foreordained of God that we should walk in them. That we might be that beautiful poem that you are writing. We might be a work of art. The church may no longer be seen as some derelict, out-of-date, hopeless thing. But Lord, a work of art for the world to look on and gasp in wonder for principalities to be, Lord, have their breath taken away if they've got breath, to see the wonder of your church. Lord, let it be, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.